Amen, friends. We just sang about that land where God will dwell with us and be uh, our everlasting and steadfast light. We have an interesting passage today that's going to foreshadow that reality. Uh, But before we open God's word together, I want to pray for us one more time briefly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you promised in your word that you will send out your word and it will accomplish the purposes for which you sent it. And so our prayer today is that you would do just that. We pray that as your word falls like rain from the sky, that it would produce the fruit of everlasting life, that it would fall on those who have ears to hear, and that we would hear your voice and respond to you today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 21 as we continue our study through the book of Genesis. We're looking specifically today at Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. And if you're using the Bible that we've provided, you'll find the passage on pages 15 to 16. And I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along when I read it. And I want to also encourage you to keep the passage open in front of you because I'm going to reference it often in our time together today. Uh, As I said, we are continuing our study through the book of Genesis, and the central purpose of the book of Genesis is to trace the unfolding of God's promise to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 3, after the serpent tempted Adam and Eve to sin, resulting in their fall from grace, resulting of the, of the entrance of death into the world and the plunging of all mankind into sin, God made a promise. He promised to send an offspring, a child of the woman, to crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin. And over the last 10 chapters of Genesis, we've seen how God intends to fulfill that promise through Abraham and his wife, Sarah. So back in Genesis 12, God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, lots of descendants. He promised to give Abraham his very own land, a country for his descendants to live in, and he promised that through Abraham's offspring, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That promise of Genesis 3 is gonna come to fruition through Abraham's offspring. Glorious promises. And last week, we saw how God began making good on those promises. After 25 years of waiting, Abraham and Sarah, who was barren, finally had a son of their own, Isaac, the very son that God promised to give them. And this week, we're gonna see how God begins making good on his promise to give Abraham a land of his very own. That's not the only thing that we're gonna learn this week. We're also going to learn that while God has begun fulfilling his promises to Abraham, the ultimate fulfillment of those promises lies further off in the future. This is what's commonly referred to as the already but not not yet nature of the fulfillment of God's promises. We're going to see God make good on his promise to give Abraham ownership of the promised land. That ownership, though, is only partial. It is not yet the fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of what God has in store for Abraham. And this is important for you and me today 
if we're following Jesus Christ because we'll find out that we are in much the same situation as Abraham. We have already received the down payment on God's promises, but we have not yet received the ultimate fulfillment of them. So I'm gonna go ahead and read the passage for us now. I want you to follow along as I read. This is Genesis chapter 21, verses 22 to 34. This is God's word. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Normally, I like to tell you up front what the main point of the passage is, but today what I'd like to do is just walk through the passage, kind of explain the details of it, explain what's going on, and then I want to connect what's going on here to the broader story of redemption that encompasses all of Scripture before I help us think about what this passage means for us today. So what I want you to do is just go ahead and look down with me at the text, beginning in verse 22, where we see Abraham and Abimelech agree to a treaty. So in verse 22, we see that Abraham is visited by Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of Abimelech's army. So this is, if you've been tracking with us through the study in Genesis, this is the same Abimelech from chapter 20, the king of Gerar who took Abraham's wife Sarah as a result of Abraham lying to him. You'll remember that God then came to Abimelech in a dream and told him he was a dead man if he didn't return Sarah to Abraham. And Abimelech then showed himself to be a righteous and upstanding man. He feared God and gave Sarah back to Abraham and then blessed Abraham with great wealth. That same Abimelech has come to Abraham to make a treaty with him. Now look at what he says in verses 22 and 23. God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. 
But right, we just need to take a step back and remember the, the great promises that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Some astounding promises, right? He promised him innumerable descendants who would become a great nation. He promised him his own land. And he promised to bless the nations through him. And pretty much everything after chapter 12 shows how God kept those promises to Abraham, right? We even saw last week how God kept his promise to give Abraham a son through whom he would have innumerable descendants. We've seen how Abraham has been a blessing to the nations when he defeated the Mesopotamian kings who were wreaking havoc on the people of Canaan. And this week we'll see how God keeps his promise to give Abraham land. I say all of that because one of the other promises God made to Abraham was that he would make Abraham's name great. I will make your name great, and you will be great among the nations. Abraham would become powerful and influential, a man that other people regarded as great. And it's clear from this passage and from the very first words out of Abimelech's mouth that God has kept that promise, right? God is with you in all that you do. Even Abimelech can see how God is making Abraham great. And you also just need to take a step back and think about the fact that when people make a treaty, usually it's the weaker party approaching the stronger party in order to make some treaty with them so that the stronger party will agree to be kind to them or to offer them protection or whatever it is that they need. And here you have a king coming to Abraham and saying, let's make a treaty together. You, you be kind to me and I will be kind to you. Abraham is a force to be reckoned with. And Abimelech recognizes that, right? That's why he says God is with you in all that you do. And so he makes a treaty with him. And the treaty is really straightforward. Don't deal falsely with me. Right? We have to assume, though, that when Abimelech said this, you won't deal falsely with me, that Abimelech maybe, maybe said this with a raised eyebrow, right? Like, remember how you lied to me about Sarah, right? We're not gonna let that happen again, are we? Right? Don't, don't deal falsely with me, even though you already did. I'm gonna give you another chance, and I won't deal falsely with you. Show kindness to me and to my descendants. And in verse 24, Abraham agrees. I swear, I will do it. And it seems, as we continue looking at the passage, that Abraham thought this was an opportune time to address another matter with Abimelech that he was upset about. Go ahead and look at verses 25 and following. In verse 25, it says, Abraham reproves Abimelech. Kids, any of the kids here tell me, what does it mean to reprove another person? What do you think it means? Raise your hand if you think you know. Adam, to chide or correct, that's right, it's like a rebuke. Abraham rebukes Abimelech, right? It means he confronted him. Apparently, what had happened is that Abraham had dug and built a well of water for his family and his flocks, and some of Abimelech's men came along and took control of it from him. And in verse 26, Abimelech responds and basically pleads ignorance, right? He says, this is the first time I'm hearing about this. I haven't heard about this matter before, and I don't know who did it. And in verses 27 to 32, we see that on top of the treaty they made in the first couple verses, they also make a covenant. In verse 27, 
Abraham takes sheep and oxen, and the two men make a covenant. But what about? What was the point of the covenant? Look at verse 28 and following. Abraham sets apart an additional seven ewe lambs. Those are young female sheep. And in verse 29, Abimelech is like, what's up with these lambs? You already gave me sheep and oxen. And Abraham's like, I'll tell you what's up. And when you take these lambs, you're testifying that this well belongs to me, which basically means the, well, the land around the well also belongs to me. And Abimelech obviously takes the lambs. And so Moses tells us that as a result, that place was called Beersheba because there they swore an oath. You may have a note in your Bible that says Beersheba means place of the oath, the covenant that was just made, or place of the seven, referring to the seven lambs that symbolized the oath. The name itself would testify that the well and the land of Beersheba belonged to Abraham. And after the treaty and the covenant were made, Abimelech and Phicol returned to the land of the Philistines, or Gerar, where Abimelech was king. And after they leave, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree and worships the Lord. Those are our verses. Let's pray. Kidding. We're going to keep going. We want to understand what this means for us, right? Now, why, after this meeting, does Abraham worship the Lord? What is it about this meeting that causes Abraham to commemorate it with the planting of a tamarisk tree and then calling on the name of the Lord? You, you, you have to come to this, these verses when you read them. You have to admit, this is an underwhelming story. This is really, like, I just do not get what is going on here. And it's especially underwhelming when you consider the, the, the grand scheme of the larger section having to do with Abraham from chapter 12 and all the way through to 24 and 25. I mean, you think about what we've already seen and how awesome some of these chapters are, right? You have God's first calling and promises to Abraham in, in Genesis 12. You have Abraham and Lot deciding which land they're going to live in in chapter 13. You have Abraham defeating the Mesopotamian kings and rescuing Lot in chapter 14. You have the covenant ceremony where God walks through the slain animals twice showing that he will bear the, 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 the promises and the curses of the covenant himself in chapter 15. You have Sarah and Hagar in chapter 16 and that, that grand scheme and how it, it backfired. You have the covenant of circumcision in chapter 17, all these amazing chapters just stacking up one after the other. And you have God confronting Abimelech in a dream. You're a dead man, right? Crazy dream, right? Genesis 20. Then you have the birth of Isaac in 21, the promised child. Then you have the sacrifice of Isaac in chapter 22 on the mount where, the God, where God provides the ram. Amazing chapters. And right smack in the middle, the middle of the climax of Abraham's story, you have... An argument about a well? Like, what? Why on, why on earth is this passage here? If you're reading your Bible and you're thinking to yourself, I, I don't get it. I don't blame you. It's hard, it's hard to understand, right? It seems, how do we say, insignificant. Uh, but, in fact, this passage is quite significant. And it fits perfectly into the flow of Abraham's story. I've already mentioned it a couple times this morning. The major promises of God to Abraham are land and offspring. 
I will give you your own land, and I will give you many descendants. In the previous passage, we saw how God kept his promise of offspring by giving Abraham a son, Isaac, from whom the nation of Israel would eventually come. Promise of seed, check. And here, where Abimelech covenants with Abraham to give him the well and the land of Beersheba, he is giving Abraham ownership of a portion of the promised land. Promise of land, check. And Abraham worships God, not only because God has kept his promises of land and seed, he worships God because he knows that the way God has already fulfilled the promises will be far surpassed by a greater fulfillment that is yet to come. He knows that with the down payment of Isaac that he already possesses, he will one day yet have many descendants, more numerous than the sand on the seashore, and he knows that with the down payment of the well and the land of Beersheba that he already possesses, he will one day yet possess the entire promised land. The well and the land of Beersheba are God's down payment to Abraham. I will do everything I have promised to do. I gave you a son when you couldn't have a son, and many descendants will come from him. I have given you a well and the land, and it may not look great right now, but it will be glorious in its ultimate fulfillment. I will do everything that I have promised you. And we learn that Abraham's expectations that God would fulfill his promises were not misplaced. Right, you keep reading through the rest of the Old Testament like we did this morning. Kesed read Joshua chapter three. God would go on to make Abraham's descendants more numerous than the sand of the seashore, and he would go on to give Abraham's offspring all of the promised land. Think about Joshua chapter 21. After Israel has come into the land, they've defeated all of their enemies. Joshua chapter 21. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Every single one of them. Do you, do you know what the drumbeat of our last 10 sermons in Genesis has been? God will keep his promises. Every week it's the same point. God will keep his promises. You can trust God to keep his promises. I've been trying to figure out different ways to say the same thing over and over again. God will keep his promises. That's, that's what the point of this one is again. We're, we're gonna look at some other things that we can think about as well, but this is it. God will do what he said he would do. God will give you the entire land and he's starting by giving you a well in the land of Beersheba and it will come to pass. The nation of Israel experienced the fulfillment of God's promises and yet... And yet, Israel eventually lost the land because of their persistent sins. That's the story of the rest of the Old Testament. God cast them out of the land of Canaan that he had promised to them and sent them into exile. And though a remnant returned to the land in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, God, uh, and to those people, God sent prophets to that remnant 
with glorious promises that he would bring his people to an even greater land and that he would do that through his Messiah who was coming to crush the serpent and rescue mankind from sin. So even when Israel, the remnant of Israel, came back into the land of Canaan, God said, there is a greater land coming, and there is a person coming, the Messiah, the one who I have appointed to crush the serpent's head and rescue you from sin. He is going to bring you into an even greater land, that this land that was flowing with milk and honey is only a foreshadow of. And God kept his promise there as well by sending his son Jesus, the son of Abraham, and the seed of the woman, who was born in the promised land, but came to bring us to the true promised land by crushing the serpent, by defeating sin and death and Satan and hell on the cross, by dying and being buried and lying in the grave for three days, and then rising again from the dead and saying to all people everywhere, repent of sin and trust in me. And those who trust in me, I will give you the good deposit of the Holy Spirit as a foreshadow that every promise I make to you and the land that I am going to create for you and the land that me and the Father are building for my people, I will eventually bring you to. That is what Christ is offering to all today and that is the promise that you have to rest your life on if you are a believer. All of God's promises in Christ will come true to you including the promise of a land, a land of your own where you will dwell with God forever. That's what God taught us in the New Testament. He taught us that the promised land of Canaan, here pictured in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, is a shadow and a type of the true promised land that God was preparing for his people. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. See, see, Jesus looked forward to the day when God's people would inhabit the whole earth and not just the land of Canaan. And it seems even that in the Old Testament, Abraham knew that was the case because the author of Hebrews tells us that Abraham wasn't looking forward to receiving the land of Canaan. But by faith, he knew that God had an even greater land in store for him. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Abraham knew this well and Beersheba, this isn't it. Even the whole land of Canaan isn't what God has in store for me. God has in store for me a city that he's building for all of those who love him. Abraham knew that the well of Beersheba was a down payment, not just on the land of Canaan, but on the new heavens and the new earth. That is yours by faith, Abraham. He knew that though God had given him a down payment on his promise of a land, he had not yet given him the true fulfillment of that promise in the new heavens and the new earth. God had already fulfilled the promise of the land and at the same time had not yet ultimately fulfilled the promise of the land. And as a result, Abraham, even though he now possessed land in Canaan, was still 
a sojourn, waiting for his true home. You see that even in the passage. Notice the emphasis in the passage on Abraham's status as a sojourner. Look at the end of verse 23. Abraham points out that Abraham was a sojourner. Then again at the very end of the passage, in verse 34, even after he's come to possess the well in the land of Beersheba, he is still a sojourner. He sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines, which was in the land of Canaan. Here you have the picture, and this is where it starts to get real for you and me today. If you've been checking out, this is where I want you to check back in. Here you have a picture of the man of faith who was made righteous through his faith in God's promises, who has received a down payment on God's promise of a land, and yet remains a sojourner as he awaits the ultimate fulfillment of this promise in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, this is the same position that you are in today. Though God has already saved, justified, and forgiven you, though he's already brought you into his kingdom, you have not yet received the fullness of the salvation that God has planned for you. You have not yet received the promise of the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of God himself. This is why Peter, talking to Christians, after describing their salvation that they had already experienced, would go on to say, you are sojourners and exiles waiting for the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Christians are sojourners in a world that is not our own. God has given us the good deposit of the Holy Spirit that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1 is a guarantee of all of God's promises but we have not yet received the ultimate fulfillment of them. And while we wait to receive the ultimate fulfillment of those promises, we wait as sojourners in a foreign land. And there are two things that this passage teaches us about how we should live as sojourners in a foreign land. I want us to look to Abraham as an example for how we are to live today, waiting, the, await, living in the middle of the already but not yet as we look forward to the comings of the new heavens and the new earth while we still dwell here as sojourners in a foreign land. There are two things this passage teaches us about how we should live. As sojourners, waiting for the ultimate fulfillment of the new heavens and new earth, we should seek to live at peace with our neighbors. That's the first point of application. And the second one is, we should set up reminders of God's past faithfulness to us. Sojourners should seek to live at peace with their neighbors. The treaty in verses 22 and 24 and the covenant in verses 25 to 34 essentially form one gigantic peace treaty between Abraham and Abimelech. And we have to recognize that the success of that treaty passing wasn't guaranteed. Why do you think Moses tells us that Abimelech brought Phicol, the commander of his army, with him? My man Abimelech is trying to flex on Abraham, right? Like, Abraham, you see Phicol with me, right? 
I got my military commander here with me, right? We can go to war if you want to go to war, but as it is, we're down for peace if you're, if you're also down for peace. And it's not surprising that he brought Phicol with him. Abraham has already defeated Mesopotamian kings. They know that if he fights, they're going to have a problem on their hands, which also meant that Abraham didn't have to agree to peace. If he wanted to fight, he would have the skill and the manpower to do it. But Abraham, the sojourner, chooses peace. Abraham was to be an example to the nation of Israel. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 20, before the nation of Israel enters the promised land to take possession of it, God tells them, before you go to battle with the city, offer them a peace treaty. And if they take it, you live at peace with them, right? God's people are not to be a war-making people. We are to be a peace-making people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. Strive to live at peace with everyone. That word everyone really clarifies things for us, doesn't it? Right? In all of your relationships, in your home, in the church, in your workplace, in your community, and so on, you and I are to strive to live at peace with everyone. And as sojourners, we seek to live at peace with everyone because when we're giving... When we do that, we're giving people a glimpse of what life in the new heavens and new earth is gonna be like. It will be a place where interpersonal peace reigns. Now, I know that some of y'all will vehemently disagree with me on this. Some of you may even throw things about what I'm about to say, but I wanna call you to peace based on Abraham's example. One of my favorite things about going to the movies is watching the previews. I love movie previews. I love seeing what movies are on their way, and now there's a lot of bad stuff out there today. This is more when I was younger. I was going to the movies regularly, kind of looking forward to the movies that were coming as I was growing up. But I loved seeing what movies were on the way, right? I love how hyped they get you for the movie, right? They, they cut and splice the best two minutes of the movie into one single preview so that you think, wow, that entire movie's gonna be amazing. It, won't, it doesn't turn out that way, right? But you, you start to think, this movie is going to be amazing based on that preview. When sojourners pursue peace with their neighbors, we're giving people a preview of that world to come. People should want to see that new world based on the way that we pursue peace in this world. Not only that, but unlike movies, which are more often gonna fail to live up to their preview than not, the peace of the new heavens and new earth will far surpass any peace that we experience in this life. I mean, you just think about what's going on in our world today. And the lack of peace that afflicts nations, states, counties, cities, towns, homes, and people. From the greatest to the least, there is a lack of peace in this world. But in the new heavens and the new earth, peace and justice will reign. And when you seek peace with your neighbors in this world, we're giving people a preview of that world to come. Telling people what our God is like and what life will be like. 
And I want you to think about striving for peace in two different categories. Let's call them reactive peace and proactive peace. Striving to live at peace with everyone looks like reacting favorably to requests for peace. Abimelech asks Abraham for peace, and Abraham reacts or responds by saying, I will live at peace with you. There will be times where you are in a position in life to react to a situation, and how you react to that situation will determine whether there is peace or not. The most obvious example is when there are situations in which you are the offended party and somebody comes to you seeking forgiveness. You can blow the situation up by responding in anger or you can strive to live at peace by forgiving. Kids, I wanna especially help you think through this, right? If you're at home or at school, and let's say one of your siblings or one of your classmates, you know, the, you're doing something to them and, and they say, will you stop? One of the ways that you seek peace, reacting to their request for peace, is by stopping doing what they are asking you uh, to stop doing, right? Make sure that you always stop. Most fighting amongst kids happens when one kid says stop and the other doesn't stop doesn't say, I will stop, right? But we wanna be the type of kids who are peacemakers. Leah coined a phrase in our home that when somebody says, stop, you're supposed to respond, yes, I will honor your request. She even has to say it to me sometimes. I'm like, yes, I will honor your request. This is really simple, right? It's a really simple instruction, but it's also really hard to do because we are still at war with the flesh, Kids, I wanna help you think about that. If you have people in your life this week, siblings maybe, who say, hey, stop, they're requesting peace with you. And you can follow in Christ's footstep by stopping. But there will also be times where you need to proactively seek peace. That's what we see happen in the second part of the passage. Abraham proactively takes the opportunity to seek peace by addressing a wrong that had been done to him. Right, the book of Proverbs is amazing. One of the things that it tells us is that it's to a person's glory to overlook an offense. And indeed, it often is uh, to a man's glory to overlook an offense. But it's also the case that striving for peace at times looks like addressing wrongs that have been done so that true peace can exist. That's the difference between peacekeepers and peacemakers. Peacekeepers just sweep everything under the rug, including their own anger and bitterness, and they never speak up. Peacemakers use discernment to determine which things should be swept under the rug and which things should be addressed for true peace to exist, right? Christians are not commanded to avoid conflict at all costs, but to engage in it in a particular way, that is, in a peaceable way. And we engage in it by peaceably pointing out the wrong that was done and working together with the other party involved to address it. So maybe another church member has sinned against you or displays a pattern of persistent, maybe not sinful, kind of unloving behavior that you're not sure is sin, but it's definitely hurting your relationship with them. Maybe a coworker or boss has done something that has negatively impacted your life. Maybe one of your neighbors has had another loud party that has kept you up all night. If you're in a situation like that, it may be necessary for you to proactively seek peace 
by addressing what has happened in a peaceable way. If you're in a situation like that and you're wondering whether you should go to the person, overlook it or address it, get input from other members of the church. Talk with one of the elders. We're happy to help you think through that. And I also wanna say that all of us are gonna regularly fall on one side or another. Some of us are prone to confront about everything and some of us are prone to overlook everything. If you're the person who confronts over everything, my encouragement may be to you to kind of pull back on that a little bit and maybe overlook a a little bit more. But if you're the type of person who's prone to overlook everything, maybe just get walked, walked on top of, walked all over, my encouragement to you would be to seek peace by addressing the wrong done to you in a peaceable way, right? Christians are to be peacemakers. But as sojourners, we also have to recognize that in a fallen world, peace isn't always possible, right? In Romans 12, Paul says, if possible, if possible, live peaceably with all. Sometimes it's not possible, but that shouldn't stop us from pursuing it. And whatever is preventing us from obtaining it should drive us to long more and more for our true homeland. Sojourners should seek to live at peace with everyone. And second, much shorter, sojourners should set up reminders of God's faithfulness to them. Notice again what Abraham did in verses 33 and 34. After God gives him the deposit on the promised land by giving him the well and the land of Beersheba, he plants a tree and worships the Lord. Worships the Lord. Right? He plants a tree. What would that tree become? It would become, in the years and decades ahead, a reminder of God's faithfulness to Abraham. So even after Abraham dies and the nation of Israel sees that tree in Beersheba, they can say, God is keeping his promises to Abraham. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness to him. And, it would, and it's doubtless that Abraham would need to be reminded of God's faithfulness because of all that's gonna happen in his life. In a few weeks, we'll see that Sarah will die. And Abraham himself will die without ever seeing the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to him, all of which would cause the normal believer to start doubting. Is God going to do what he promised? Is God going to be faithful? And the tree that he planted would serve as a reminder to him, a reminder of God's faithfulness in the past, giving him confidence in God's faithfulness in the present, and certainty that God would be faithful in the future. Every time he saw the tree, he would remember that God keeps his promises to his people. And in the church, God has been kind to us and given the church reminders of his faithfulness in baptism and the Lord's Supper. But beyond those two reminders that God has given to us, I wanna encourage you to be on the lookout in your own life for additional opportunities to set up reminders of God's faithfulness to you. Surely you can think of specific examples of God's faithfulness to you in the recent past. You should think about setting up some sort of reminder of what God did as a way to remember God's faithfulness to you in the present and faithfulness that he will show in the future. And we need to think about setting up those reminders in our lives because if we don't set them up, we won't remember them. Last year, I took up hunting, specifically deer hunting. But I didn't come from a hunting family, so I had a lot to learn. Uh, So I took time to listen to podcasts and watch videos. And one of the things that everyone talked about was the need to get into the woods in February and March to scout where you're gonna hunt, 
the following season. And the reason for that is because in February and March, the woods are completely bare. No leaves, no nothing. You can see really easily where deer travel, where they sleep, where they eat, and all of that. And based on that, you can determine pretty easily where you're going to hunt the next year. But everyone emphasized the need to mark your path and mark the tree or the location you're going to hunt in. Because if you don't mark it, you won't remember it. Not only will you not remember it because about eight months are gonna pass until the next season comes, and that's just a lot of time to remember the specific place in the woods where you were thinking about hunting, but also because the woods will look completely different the next season. When the hunting season opens in October, the woods are still completely green. They've all grown up, there's underbrush, there's all of that, and you can't see the trails anymore. You can't recognize anything. The growth of the leaves and the vines and the underbrush that covers over the things we thought we would remember in life is a lot like the effects of the passage of time on God's mighty works in your life. If you don't mark them, you won't remember them. We want to remember the things that God has done for us. Think of the different types of reminders that we can set up. You can celebrate the day that you came to faith in Christ each year, right? We celebrate our birthdays. We should also celebrate our born again days. I'm terrible at celebrating and remembering birthdays. I don't even celebrate my own born again day when God saved me, January 5th of 2010. But in God's kind providence this morning, we are joined by Philip Lehman. Philip, go and raise your hand and just wave to everybody. Philip texts me every year on my born again day, my born again holiday to say praise God for his faithfulness to you and saving you. We should remember God's work in our life. If you can't remember the day that you were born again because you just don't know, just pick a day. What do you think Christmas is? We just pick the day to celebrate Jesus' birthday. That's not his actual birthday, right? You just pick a day, whatever it is, February 28th. That's gonna be the day I celebrate my born again you know, birthday, right? We wanna remember God's kindness to us or find some way to mark and remember a significant answer to prayer or specific display of God's faithfulness to you. We don't just see this happen once with Abraham here, but throughout scripture, God's people are called to set up reminders of God's faithfulness to them because if we don't mark them, we won't remember them. And as sojourners, we need these reminders because we aren't home yet. On this side of heaven, we will experience hardship, affliction, pain, persecution, opposition, and more. And all of those things can cause us to forget God's work in the past, doubt his faithfulness in the present, and fear that he won't be faithful in the future. And the more reminders we have set up, the more reminders we have, uh, the more reminders we have that we have nothing to ultimately fear. We may be sojourners now, but we won't be sojourners forever. God will keep his promise to us, and he will bring us into his presence forever. And we see that foreshadowed in the passage. I don't think it's a coincidence that when God gave Abraham his down payment on the land, that Abraham planted a tree. Throughout scripture, from the beginning to the end, trees are symbolic of Eden and of the place where God will dwell with his people. And as Abraham plants a tree in a dry and arid land, he's showing that the land God has promised 
his people is a land where he will dwell with them again. And that land is coming. Because when John had his vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he saw a tree. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits and leaves that brought healing to the nations. And in that land, there wasn't a well of water, but a river of life. It's that land that God is bringing us to, friends. A land where we will no longer be sojourners, but at home. A land where peace and justice reign. And a land where we will no longer need to set up reminders of God's faithfulness to us because we will be in the presence of, the, of God and the Lamb himself. We look forward to that day, and we keep pressing on to that day. So let's press on today and in the days to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we call upon you as sojourners in a foreign land. We know that this world is not our home. We pray that you would keep us Bless us and keep us from stumbling until that day when you present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.